You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Good afternoon, Cliff. Good afternoon, Bobo. How are you doing today, sir? No complaints. Still wipe my own butt. Nice. Excellent. Well, that's a good day when you can wake up and wipe your own butt. Yeah. Anything special going on? Yeah, today uh, we got a guy that I've been trying to get on for two years, I guess. Yeah, about two years. This guy, uh, Randy, he's been he works on the North Slope up there on the pipelines in the frozen tundra of Alaska up there on North Slope. So he's... Uh, you know, he's gone for months at a time and his, with the COVID thing, his schedules flopped around. But we finally got him on and he's here today to tell us about a beyond part of the Bigfoot and beyond. He had some weird stuff. Nice. The weirder, the better. Well, you're going to love this then. <laughs> hey, Randy, this is Cliff. I thought this was Bobo. No, just kidding. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> There's a little Cliff and Bobo in all of us, I think. And if, if you're not careful, one of us could grow and turn into something more malignant. yes uh yep and uh you're right bobo i i actually bring you up to date i got laid off a year ago last july so i'm no longer there that's why i'm able to do this recording today actually (laughs) before that you were a law enforcement officer yes and i i worked on the slope for 19 years no wait 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 when you say the slope um what are you talking about uh pudo bay the oil field Dead Dead Horse, Alaska, mm-hmm. way up uh, 200 miles above the Arctic uh, Circle. And uh, it's more than a lifestyle. It's a, <laughs> a, yeah, it was a great, great gig. I loved it. Now, what what kind of terrain is up there? What do we, if I were to stand where you were working or on top of one of these oil things, looking around, what would I see? Would it mountains? Is it just tundra as far as the eye can see? Is pl- like, what am I looking at? Well, looking south, you would see the, uh, the mountain range, uh, which completely escaped my mind what what mountain range it is uh, brooks range there we go so you see the brooks range if you look south if you look anywhere else you're going to think you're in north dakota uh, and i'm not kidding i mean it's it's all tundra a lot of water sitting on the ground it is an arctic desert so when you think arctic you think a lot of snow but literally 10 inches of uh, moisture is what they get combined with snow and and rain each year so uh, when we do have snow, however, it blows back and forth uh, all winter. So you're looking at drifts as high as 20, 30 feet tall, and uh, you just never know what you're going to get. But the winters are very cold. You know, it's not unusual to have uh, winter temperatures uh, with wind chill reaching 80 below. But in the summertime, you could also have uh, 80 degrees above zero with a lot of mosquitoes. So, oh my god, I just looked up Dead Horse Alaska on um, you know, one of these online map dealies and it looks like you're right on the northern shore of basically it says the Beaufort Sea, but I mean that's basically the Arctic Ocean, right? Yes. Holy smokes. So you probably you what what kind of animals live up there like polar uh, bears? Uh, polar bears, right? Yep, actually polar bears. The first time I saw one, it was enormous and i think they estimated the weight of that polar bear was probably close to um i believe they decided it was close to 13 to 1400 pounds and uh yeah it was huge it was walking along a fence line i was in one of the checkpoints and you could i mean it just it was a beautiful sunny day real cold 
but the thing was just absolutely massive and awe. I mean, it was awe inspiring. And, uh, what they do, they, they would come out of the, uh, come off the ice and, uh, walk around and sleep for three days, you know? And at the time it was, uh, very important. Actually it still is. Uh, you just, you know, basically if they lay down and go to sleep, everything stops within, you know, quite a distance of them. You can't, uh, like if they're building an ice road, for instance, and they find a, a polar bear den with a mother and cubs, uh, they have to change the direction of that road to uh, stay at least a mile away from that polar bear, all directions. Is that because of like an endangered species act or just like common sense, you don't get close to those things? Uh, it's uh, it's actually protection by the feds and it, what, they're not actually endangered. They are uh, listed as... Uh, Threatened maybe? Yeah, let's go with that. I can't remember exactly, but you know, I uh, I had driving duties with security up there and I was entrusted with the lives of um, the secretary of interior when he made that decision. Um, and that was kind of neat to be chosen for that, but, uh, it was, it was a very interesting time. We had, he had an entourage with him, of course, and I was driving a 44 passenger bus and took him all over the oil field for four days. And we hit it off. He was a uh, former governor of Idaho. Uh, Dirk Kempthorne was his name, uh, George, George Bush's, uh, secretary of interior. And uh, turns out that his one of his best friends, who was governor of Montana when he was governor, uh, was very close friends with my sister. And uh, so it was, we had a lot to talk about. It was, it was pretty remarkable. It was. It was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Real small world. Too small for my taste. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so like Bubba says you have a really intriguing story. Should we jump into that and figure out what, like, what you're going to talk about? Because when Bubba says something is beyond, like, he, he means it. That those are not those are not words that he throws around lightly. Yep. No. It uh, well put me in shock for a long time uh, when it actually happened to me, and uh, not just myself, but there was another witness as well. Unfortunately, we don't speak anymore, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, yeah, basically, uh, and and I'm going to take you back even further than when the incident happened. It'll only take a couple minutes if you don't mind, because it'll set it up. No, please do give us a context because you know our listeners don't know you. I, I just met you for the first time today, but um, our listeners don't know you either, and they deserve to have some context for this. Well, let's let's give them some context. Absolutely. Yeah, give us your background, Randy. Like uh, you know, like police work and all that kind, of, like the outdoor experience, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Why should we believe you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I, <laughs> I've gotten to the point where I really don't care anymore if somebody believes me. But all I can do is attest to the fact that this actually happened. But, uh, but I'll, I'll, I was born and raised in Libby, Montana. Let's start there. 1955, uh, Libby being the Northwest corner of Montana, beautiful Northwest country site of the filming of always a Steven Spielberg production and river wild was filmed there. Kevin Bacon died in the falls where I used to skip school at in that movie. Um, and a few others. I had a good kid, you know, a good, good time growing up. And, um, from day one, when I could even give it a thought, uh, I knew I was going to be a policeman. And I don't even know why to this day. But uh, people say, well, what do you want to be? I said, well, I don't want to be anything. I know I'm going to be a cop. Um, so it was destined for whatever reason. And uh, <laughs> like I said, I have no idea what that reason was. Because when I left it, I was done. I didn't care anymore. I was just done. But nonetheless, um, kept my nose clean and whatnot. I had specific friends in school. And uh one of the pastimes, and this is where the story begins, was uh, when I had my driver's license. I was, 
you know, one of the things we used to do for fun when gas was 35 to 45 cents a gallon was drag the gut. And that was uh, every kid that lives in Libby probably today still does it. And it's just on a Friday, Saturday night, you'd get in your car and you drive up and down Mineral Avenue, the where all the storefronts are, the main street of Libby. And, uh, you know, and it was fun. It was a social thing. And um, in 1973, the year I graduated from high school, and it was actually right before graduation, uh, I was with my close friend at the time. His name was Don. And uh, we were cruising up and down Main Street in a 1988 Delta Oldsmobile, my, my first car, basically. I inherited it from, well, I inherited it. Basically, my dad gave it to me. And uh, driving up and down, it was nighttime, clear night. And I keep seeing a light buzz over the top of some mountains, uh, the Cabinet View Mountains. And it was just a real pinpoint light, but it was extremely bright. But, I mean, it was your very focused light, and it just flew over the mountaintops very fast. And I couldn't figure out why would a plane be flying over Libby at this hour. It was probably 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And I kept pulling over and getting out and trying to hear and see a little better. While the light continued this cycle where it would just fly over the mountains, it just circling the town. But it was moving too fast for an airplane and actually too fast for a jet. And there would be no reason for a jet flying over the mountains uh, surrounding Libby, Montana. Libby kind of sits on a bowl. and. Uh, my friend got irritated because I kept pulling over. He said, let's just keep going and, you know, let's find some friends to hang out with or something. And so I uh, was heading southbound on Mineral Avenue and a vehicle comes flying at us the opposite direction, flashing its headlights. And it's a pickup and it crosses over the yellow line, comes right into uh, our lane and I pull over and it pulls up nose to nose. And it was uh, a friend along with two of his friends, uh, a gentleman I went to school with and two opposite ends. Uh, this guy, uh, his first name was Pat. I won't give you the last name, but Pat was uh, probably the toughest kid in school. And uh, he had quite a reputation. And he was, uh, you know, I mean, he used, uh, well, at the time, smoke marijuana, at least I'll go that far. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of kids did. I didn't because I knew I was going to be a cop, right? So, um, I get out of the car. I said, what's wrong with you, man? And he grabs me by the shoulders and starts shaking me. And he said, look, he says, we were up by the golf course uh, and we were, we were smoking, smoking some weed. He says, I'll admit that. He said, but you got to understand uh, that weed doesn't cause you to have hallucinations like this. It just doesn't happen. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, we were up there parked and uh, the truck was shut off and stuff. And we were just sitting there minding our own business. And uh, he says, I'm, I'm not kidding at all. And he was, he was visibly visibly shaken. He was scared. He said, a flying saucer flew right over our truck and stopped and hovered over the top of our truck. And he said, we were kind of back in the trees, but it was clearly visible through the trees. It was right above us. And then it took off. And I said, well, that's interesting because I've been watching something circling the mountainsides here, the cabinets, you know, for the last hour or so. And he said, well, he said, I don't know, but you know, Let's go back up there and take a look. Well, while we're standing there talking, two or three other vehicles pulled up with the same story, which means a Cabinet View golf course was apparently the place to go to smoke weed, I guess. And so we convoyed up to that area, and we took a look around. Couldn't find anything, but there was a definite smell. And, uh, I mean, it smelled like burnt sulfur, rubber, whatever, and not weed. Now, I didn't smell any weed, although how would I know? Because I really, you know, stayed away from it. But that was the end of that little little deal. However, about uh, two weeks after we graduated, uh, 
Pat showed up at my house, which he'd never been there before. And he had a, I don't know, I'd call it almost a desperate desire to tell me something. I said, well, what, you know, what do you got? And he said, look, he says, I'm, he says, I'm telling you right now. He says, I don't know why I know this. I don't know how I know this, but you sometime in the future are going to have some type of uh, encounter. I said, what do you mean encounter? What are you talking about? He says, I don't know. He says, it's an encounter. He says, I don't know if it means it's an encounter of like a, um, uh, an alien or something. And I said, okay. And I just kind of, you know, said, well, okay, thanks for telling me that, you know, I appreciate it. And we, you know, proceeded on to have normal conversation, but it, it was kind of, it stuck with me the whole time, you know? So fast forward to uh, me becoming a policeman after I got out of the military, um, by a couple years, um, let's see, I became a police officer in 1980. I got out of the military in 77. And uh, moved to Spokane and and started s- installing air conditioning and heating for a big company. And they moved me to Colville, Washington. And um, that was a good move. But then the housing crunch happened and I had to find something else. And so I worked for the Forest Service for, for that summer and then uh, tested for the Colville Police Department. Got hired right away. And that started my, my life as a cop. So in 1986... I moved from Colville to Issaquah, Washington, simply because I thought it would be more exciting to move to a bigger city, better pay, better opportunities. And uh, and I did, in fact, uh, test for sergeant a couple years afterwards, make sergeant. And I was in charge of uh, a patrol unit uh, of four guys, not including myself. So there was five of us on our squad. And we were working night shift. And this was 1989. I can't give you the exact date because I seem to, uh, well, at some point in time, I misplaced my officer's uh, notebook that I used to carry. I don't really feel like I know anybody at the department well enough to say, hey, could you check the records and see what night this happened? We didn't file an actual report on it, so but everybody knew about it um, after, as time, especially the dispatchers. Anyway, so uh, uh, here I am, a patrol sergeant, and... I was standing in the office along with another officer by the name of John. Not going to give you his last name. And uh, he was a younger officer, uh, been with us for a couple of years. And we received a call of a burglary alarm at a place called Gilman Village, which is uh, a central shopping area in Issaquah. It's a beautiful area. It's uh, a place that an entrepreneur bought and moved a bunch of older homes into a central location and built woodway, uh, wooden walkways through the uh, through the uh, shopping area, and they became exclusive shops that they rented out to uh, business people. And it, it's pretty big; it's a pretty good sized area, and uh, it was a nice place to get out of the patrol car and walk and stretch your legs every night, which I used to do. Well, this particular night, we responded. Uh, we both took our individual cars and uh, we investigated the burglary alarm. And it was a uh, unusually shaped building there. We went in and the door was, in fact, ajar. And we uh, went inside, cleared the building. Nothing was disturbed. And uh, we called the owner and he decided, well, I, he said, I probably just didn't close it tight enough. Maybe the wind blew it open. I'm not going to come down to check it out. So just close the door, make sure it's locked. And thank you very much. So we did that. And uh, we walked out to our cars or the area where our cars were at. And we stood in between these two buildings, which gave us a clear shot of uh, the building that was going to become very important to this uh, little incident that I'm about to describe. 
So I'm facing John, uh, and off to our left, his or my my left, his right is a uh, basically I think it's a two story building. Looks like a house, but it's a shop. I don't know what it was called at the time, but uh, this is about three o'clock in the morning when we're having this conversation, and all of a sudden something piques our interest. We see a light about a foot under the eave of this building. And this little ball of light came around the corner. It was about the size of a soccer ball. And it slowly floated underneath the eaves. Now, both of us see it at the same time, and we're looking at each other, looking back at the ball of light. And uh, it was, um, you know, shocking on the least. I mean, we, we couldn't figure out what it was, and we're sitting there watching it. And John had his arms crossed. And I remember seeing goosebumps. You could see because of the light of the uh, one of the little lights that were attached to one of these big of this building next to us. I could literally see the goosebumps on his arm and I felt them on mine. It was, you know, it was pretty weird. So a little ball of light continues down until it reaches the end of that eave and it makes a perfect left-hand turn and goes along about the same height. And then it's just like it disappears into an envelope. Gone, you know. So we're sitting there trying to figure out what we just witnessed and we're talking about it and, you know, kind of stunned. Uh, but we're able to talk. And um, about three minutes into this conversation, uh, around the same corner, we see a ball of light. It's approximately four feet in diameter, and it's floating a foot off the ground. And it does the same thing. It floats along the side of the building. And we're, I mean, I'm scoping the place out, trying to figure out what the source is. But I also know that it's three-dimensional. It's not something being projected. It is a three-dimensional ball of light, four feet in diameter, floating off the ground. Was it the same color as the previous one? Yes, it was. And I would describe the color as, you remember the, the big advertisement of light bulbs, the soft white light bulb? That's, that's what it looked like. Uh, that's what it looked like. It was, it was emitting light onto the side of the building, but it wasn't so bright it hurt your eyes, but yet it was a bright light, you know? And it floated along that portion of the building, a foot off the ground, made it to the same corner. But as it turned the corner, I'm looking at what I describe as a being inside the ball of light. And the being is walking. Now, when I say being, I I can tell you it was a silhouette of a being. You couldn't make out a lot of detail, uh, but it was a pretty clear silhouette. And the thing that stuck out in my head was that its hand uh, closest to the exterior of that sphere was swinging back and forth as it walked. Now, what everybody's thinking, oh, a hamster. No, it was upright. It was bipedal, whatever it was. And the thing that caught my eye was that as the hand uh, basically brushed close to the side of that sphere from the inside, I could see that it hand, its hand was turned backwards and its fingers were cupped as it walked. Now, I don't know why that stuck out so much, but when you think of the uh, silhouette you have of Sasquatch on some of your stuff, uh, it wasn't big and bulky. It was not. It was almost the same same size or same shape as a normal man, except the head was a little larger than normal, in my opinion. But encapsulated within this four-foot sphere. Yes, exactly. So it makes the corner, and I'm seeing this, and I'm I'm actually in shock at this point. I can't talk. I can't move. I can't move my feet. I can't get my brain to respond trying to, uh, it was probably working overtime. I'm not the smartest man in the world, but it was working overtime trying to figure out what I'm looking at. And uh, it went down 
Uh, and at the time, the setup is a little different than what it is now. There were uh, rhododendron bushes that separated us on that side of the building from the orb and the building itself. But as it passed on the other side of those trees or those shrubs, you could see the light. It wasn't on the bushes, though. Once again, not projected. It was an, an item floating in the air behind the bushes that we could see. It made it down to the end of the bushes towards the street, and it disappeared, just like the first one. You know, like it went into an envelope, it was gone. And uh, John and I stood there for probably two or three minutes looking at each other, looking at the building, and he said, I'm getting the F out of here. He took off. He, he bolted, got back in his car, and he was gone. And I uh, I followed suit shortly thereafter. I said, well, I'm not going to stay here by myself. So I left, and um, I went back to the office. I told the dispatcher what had happened. And, um, you know, uh, John said, I'm not talking about this. I'm not talking about this. And I'll be darned if he never did. He never did. And he left that department about a year after, um, and I lost contact with, with him completely. So I was able to keep it a secret from the other guys for about a week. And then I probably started talking about it a little bit because it was hard to hold inside, you know, what I just saw. And, uh, of course, they did the usual stuff. Well, what you smoking, man? You know, you guys are crazy out there. So I said, well, I'm sorry, you know, but I, I held my ground. I, I never, never altered my story. I still won't. I can't. It's what I saw. And, uh, you know, so uh, after that incident, uh, I didn't go back to, to do any walkthroughs of that place, I think, probably for at least a year. I avoided the place. So that's the story. Uh, there's a lot of follow-up to this, but uh, later contact with John, the officer and stuff. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. I've got a few questions. Um, the figure was walking. Was the speed of the bubble floating matching that of the walking? Does that make sense, or, or was it like running inside of a hamster thing, like you're saying? No, it wasn't. It was. It was. It was going the same speed as the ball. I mean, it was. It wasn't walking. It was like a normal pace uh, if you were just to go for a stroll. But it was floating above the ground at the same time, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, it looks like the speed of the walking figure might have been propelling it, like it, it matched that speed appropriately. Yeah, uh, you could say that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but yeah. No, no, it doesn't make sense, but that's why I'm asking. Um, yeah, because I didn't, because maybe the legs were going too fast or too slow, but it was going at a certain speed. Um, did it look like the, 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 the ball itself look like some sort of um, shell or sphere that was maybe turning? Or was it just, the, the, as far as you know, the sphere itself was stationary and the thing inside was moving? That's what it looked like. I, I didn't see any movement of the sphere itself other than it moving across the ground or above the ground by a foot. It just, you know, but I didn't see any type of uh, orbit, <laughs> if you will. The sphere was, it appeared to be stationary. Okay. Now, you mentioned a smell earlier at the golf course when you were a kid, you know, in a 17, 18-year-old or whatever. Was there a smell in this situation? No, there wasn't. No smell at all. I, I no, uh-uh. nothing. Okay, and do you think that what you observe, this strange, you know, sphere thing, um, did do you think it, there was any connection between it and the uh, open door that you responded to as a police officer? I don't. I really don't. I think it was just a coincidence that we happened to respond to that at the same time. I mean, I, I don't. I don't. That's why we were there. 
Um, now, in the big scheme of things, in the universal things, you know, uh, the scheme of the universe, maybe it was a setup. I mean, maybe the universe said, hey, I want you guys to see this. I don't know. I, I do tend to think that the universe with a capital U has a very strange sense of humor. So I wouldn't put, put that past it. So, yeah. Yep. You're right. Now, um, the, the first sphere that you saw, the basketball size one that was just under the underneath the eaves of the building, this is a time question really more than anything else. You saw it go around the building and then kind of disappear from view, or you said this kind of clip out like it went into an envelope, actually. Um, I believe that's the first one. Maybe that was the second one. But um, it kind of disappeared from view. Do you think that the one that you saw with the figure in it that was down closer to the ground might have been the same one as it circumnavigated the building a second time? Or do you think it was completely separate? Well, at the time, I thought it was separate. And I, I don't really have any way of saying it wasn't now. I mean, I, it, it could have been either or. Um, I mean, the timing would have been about right, I suppose. Uh, if you figure that in, but, um, I don't know. I just don't know. No, oh, yeah. I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer. In fact, it's one that I prefer as long as it's true. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of too many people make up answers and thinking they're going to give me something I want to hear when frankly, I don't know would be suffice. It would suffice. It's fine. Yep. And I, I went through life. I mean, for several years, uh, totally confused with no idea. Nobody offered me anything. I thought I was alone, right. Along with John. And uh, here's the funny thing. Uh, in 2002, the same company up in the slope uh, that I was working for got a contract at the Kodiak launch facility. And this is what started started the healing process, I guess, for the post-traumatic thing that I had because of this. When we went to the Kodiak launch facility, it was a military launch of a device that would launch a... Um, Minuteman 1, an old Minuteman 1 missile that had been converted into a rocket. In other words, they put fins on it. And uh, it, it had a device on the top that they were going to send up, and it's used to calibrate uh, military equipment that basically would track incoming ICBMs, which fascinated me because uh, that's what I did when I was in the Air Force was I was a maintenance personnel uh, maintenance team member uh, for Minuteman missiles at Ellsworth Air Force Base, Minuteman 2. I was the guy that put the warhead on top and screwed them together. And, um, you know, so it was kind of exciting to me to be there. It was a six-week process. Well, when we got there, when my group got there, um, we had this big chat with the boss and all this other stuff. who was a very professional retired colonel from the Air Force. And we chatted for a while in his office, and uh, he said, okay, well, you guys are here. You're going to get really bored. He says, you'll notice that because of our communication stuff, normal radios aren't going to work as far as FM, AM radios. So you're going to get bored. So we're going to give you this computer over in one of the rooms here. You guys sit down. You can do whatever you want as long as you're not interfering with your patrol time because we take turns going out and patrolling the whole area. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Kodiak Island, but it is an amazing, beautiful place. And the launch facility actually had a wild, uh, well, I guess, I don't know if you call them wild, but there were buffalo on the launch facility that would roam the whole facility. And this thing was acres. I don't know how many acres it is, but it's gigantic and sits right on a little peninsula of this island. And uh, they launch various types of uh, satellites from there. And it's really interesting. It was really a, a neat part of my life even if it was only for six weeks. Well, one of the things I did to kill time was I signed up uh, with a guy online who every cop in the world listens to or used to, uh, Art Bell. 
and Coast to Coast. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Basically, I signed up to listen to his uh, show every night because we couldn't get it on the radio. So I had to pay a little money to his website and stuff. Well, um, one day I just I decided, you know what, uh, I'm going to start talking about this a little more. So I sent him an email with the story I just told you about this orb. And, uh, you know, Art Bell was probably the third rated person in the world, Howard Stern being right above him. And I don't know who was number one, but uh, Art Bell was at least number one or two and on the spot. And um, he had 17 million listeners throughout the world. And when I sent him an email, I didn't expect him to even find it or see it. Right. So I sent the email and uh, it was I sent it to him on a Tuesday or Wednesday. And the guy that I was working with was this old timer named Archie. He was part of uh, the Nana security group on the island. Um, I'm sitting there. I hadn't even turned on the computer yet. And he comes running in. It was open mic night, which was a Friday night. And he comes running in. He says, quick, turn on Art Bell. <laughs> I says, why? He says, you're reading this story, this creepy story from this cop in Washington State. I went, uh-oh. <laughs> so I turned it on. And sure enough, he's reading my story. And he keeps saying, Randy, if you're listening to this broadcast, here's, I want you to call this number. It's a special number. You'll get right in. Well, I'm sitting there dumbfounded because I'm at a, a Kodiak launch facility on a military project. And I know darn well that they are going to know who you're calling, who you're, you know, I'm not about to call in and, and talk to Art Bell at a military launch. It's not going to happen. Um, I'm pretty sure I probably would have been canned or, you know, disciplined in some way. So I kept sending him fast blast emails. I'm listening, but I can't talk to you right now. And it, it was bad. I mean, I, I wanted to call real bad, but I'm not going to do it. So um, I just, I, that was a little depressing, but I was very excited that he read the story. And the end result, because it was an open mic night or open line night, I guess is what he called it. Uh, he started receiving phone calls from police officers all over the country and all over the world with some of the craziest stories you've ever heard. Crazy as in exciting, uh, including, I remember there was uh, two deputies that called and they were brothers and they had their family out camping and they ran into Sasquatch, a great, great Sasquatch story. And um, it was very impressive. And I, I felt good about that. It, and he was, Art Bell was also happy uh, because it did open up this line of communication with police officers. So we accomplished something, right? The following Monday, now we're listening to Art Bell again at the launch facility. And he has a guest and it's from uh, Bob Bigelow's group that was investigating the first group to investigate Skinwalker Ranch, uh, the NIDS program, right? And I'm I'm thinking it was, and I uh, I literally through a friend went through their whole archive trying to find the show, and uh, one of the physicists that was there, whose name I can't even pronounce anyway, Colm something, anyway, uh, it may have been him or uh, easier to find would be Colonel Alexander, who it also could have been. They uh, Art Bell actually read my story to that gentleman. And I think it was Alexander, but I, I can't prove it. I can't make sure. Um, and he said, well, what these guys seem to have seen is I would identify as a dimensional traveler. Now, 
<laughs> and he compared it to when his investigators were on that plateau watching the being come down in a ball of light. Uh, but in that case, the, the being actually stepped out of the ball of light, crawled through like it was crawling through a little cave onto the ground and walked away. And he described it as Sasquatch-like. And, you know, I, I was up with it. I, I was okay with it up to the point where he said it was a dimensional traveler. And, you know, I'd never heard of that before. And I kind of blew it off as, I, I don't think so. But uh, as time went on and, and I got more information, it kind of makes sense at this point. But uh, I like the comparison with what they saw at Skinwalker. So that's where we're at. So that was my first time putting the story out in the public was through Art Bell. He was my mouthpiece. And I'm very privileged to have had that happen. Well, years later, uh, 2009, I was listening to Coast to Coast, and they had a guest on there, a young man by the name of Josh P. Warren. And he was talking about orbs, more or less uh, about Brown Mountain Lights, the investigation that he was doing uh, on that location. And he's actually more than a guest. He's actually a friend of George Nury. He used to do a, every Saturday, he would do a piece on the show. So I wrote him a note saying, ah, you know, well, here's what happened to me. What do you think? And he said, I want you on my show. And he had a radio show out of uh, Asheville, North Carolina at the time called Speaking of Strange. So I was a guest on his show. And I told my story and it got pretty good notice and stuff. Everybody liked it. And it also made me think, you know what? I need to get a hold of this John guy that was with me and find out what, I, what he saw. And um, so I was able to do it. And I found him through uh linkedin right i think it was called linkedin the career thing and uh i contacted him i found his information got his phone number and we had a discussion and it went very well and i told him i says you know john i said i just did this talk show and i feel like i had about 100 pounds lifted off my shoulders i says you need to start talking about this stuff so let's start with you telling me what you saw because you never told me and he described exactly the same thing. And I was so happy to, to hear him say exactly what he saw without me coaching him, without him hearing my show <clears throat> that I had done. And it matched up perfectly. And then he said, I'm going to hand the phone to my wife. Would you please talk to her and tell her what we saw? Because she thinks I'm absolutely um, crazy. So I did. And uh, I said, I hope that helps. She says, well, he says it didn't. She says, I can already tell you she thinks we're both nuts. So... <laughs> That was kind of sad, but uh, I kept in touch with him for a long time. And there was a show that was filmed in Toronto. Um, and I did Josh P. Warren's show a second time about a dream that I had that saved my life when I was a police officer. And I believe it saved my life anyway. And um, so I think uh, I, I really tried to talk John into getting involved and in doing some things with me if I ever had a chance to you know, invite him to do some shows. Well, that chance came a couple years ago. Um, there was a, I'm not going to name the show, but it involved uh, first responders who had paranormal experiences. And I had sent my story to him and they, they actually, Josh talked me into doing it. Um, we remained very close, uh, Josh and I, and he talked me into it. He said, you need to contact this lady. She's looking for people. So I did. And they said, yeah, we want, want, want you to come and film an episode for this show. So uh, we were both up for it. And about two days before we were supposed to take the flight out, he lived, lived in Texas at the time. All of a sudden, I get a call from the producer who said, we can't find John. He won't answer. He won't respond. 
So I tried. He wouldn't respond to me either. So uh, that was, you know, that's interesting. So I flew out there, did my episode, uh, did the whole episode myself without the help of John. And I was pretty irritated. And I remember writing him a rather uh, nasty note saying, thanks a lot. You know, what, what, you know, called him a few choice names. And he'd done it to me before on another radio show as well. Uh, Jimmy Church, uh, his show, Fade to Black. And uh, he, he didn't show up for that one either. It was a phone thing. But this one, he actually, you know, didn't didn't show up at the airport or nothing without giving any notice. So uh, I sent him a nasty note. Never heard from him uh, a couple months later. So I just found your note. And basically, uh, if I ever see you again, I'm going to punch you in the face. He says, I had a death in the family, which I understand if that's true. It was very tragic. But even if I would have had a death in the family, I would have had the common sense to call a production company and say, hey, uh, you know, we're not I, I can't make it because. But he didn't do anything, so he left us all hanging. So I don't know what really happened there. Uh, hopefully, he didn't have a death in the family, but if he did, I'm sorry. But uh, I haven't spoke to him since. So, uh, yeah, so we got that going for us. But, you know, I uh, I continue to be pretty open about it. I've done a couple of shows since, uh, radio programs or podcasts. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to stop. I Every time I do it, I feel better. And I'll tell you, after the incident happened, initially, every single day, every single day from 1989, every single day, 30 minutes, my brain would, uh, for, for about 30 minutes, would shift back to that night, and I'd relive the whole damn thing over again. And this went on from 1989 until 2009, when I actually did the Josh P. Warren uh, segment on Speaking of Strange. And then it just started to go away. Then I could control it. Up until then, I couldn't control it. So you guys that have actually seen Sasquatch, I've heard other people talk about it and hear them say well, like that it changes their life, that it, it you can't stop thinking about it every single day. That's what I went through. And I've determined that that's what it was, was post-traumatic stress disorder. And the only way to fix it is to talk openly about it. We're at the right spot because people call me the Sasquatch psychiatrist. I fix people up. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so doing your show is going to help me once again, you know, just take control of it again. And that's what, that's what needs to happen. So anybody out there listening to this, if you've had an incident, hey, uh, you know, tell somebody, talk about it. Don't be afraid. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Now, now, how did uh, having such a strange thing happen to you affect your uh, patrols as a police officer? You know what? Uh, I've got big shoulders. And although there's criticism that comes with admitting something like that happening to you, um, it didn't affect me at all. I mean, I was I consider myself a pretty successful police officer. Um, I did end up moving to another department. I went to work for Bothell, and that's where I actually uh, pretty much retired from when my father passed away because I wanted to go back and uh, start a coffee company in Libby, Montana, which turned out not to be such a good idea. That's how I ended up on the North Slope. Um, as I actually, when I went to North Slope, I joined those guys as a police officer of the North Slope Borough Police Department in Barrow, Alaska, the furthest northern community in the United States with the largest jurisdiction, 94,000 square miles of patrol. Um, which of course you don't do because there's it's only split up into seven 
uh, villages, the largest being Barrow. And uh, I ended up in Point Hope, um, Alaska, for about 10 months. And then 9-11 happened, and that's when I got picked up by the security group that was uh, covering security for British Petroleum. I see. Okay, so it, it wasn't like you know when you're peeking around the edge of a building, you're expecting to see one of these you know glowing orbs again or something. And you know what? Um, I'm I'm actually glad I didn't. Um, but of course, I thought about it, uh, and I continued to listen to Coast to Coast too, which probably didn't help. <laughs> but I didn't let it change the way I did did my job. I just didn't. Uh, although, like I said, I didn't go back to Gilman Village probably for a year on night patrol. And then I was able to get out and kind of walk around a little bit again. But the thing that this is going to sound stupid, even though I was in the middle of a city when that happened, I used to being from Montana, I used to do a lot of camping and tents and stuff. Uh, that came to an end. I, I couldn't go out and sleep in a tent to save my life. I mean, I just couldn't do it only because I had nothing to do with woodland creatures of any kind. What it had to do with was the fact that I knew from that point on, that there's things out there that I didn't understand, had no control of. And I wasn't about to put myself out in a tent uh, in the woods uh, because all of a sudden I had this idea that I was some kind of an attractant for this stuff. You might have been. I was thinking that same thing because I think some people just put their weird beacon up and stuff comes to them. Um, you know, because several people I know have had multiple encounters with things like UFOs or ghosts or like the weird stuff, right? Um, and some people just, you know, I'm sure many of them consider it a curse, but some some people are just blessed like that. That weird stuff surrounds them. Um, yeah, and and you're, I guess, in some ways, you're lucky. It's just lights and stuff like that, orbs or whatever. Um, you know, Bobo, for example, is surrounded by chaos. Uh, th- if something can go wrong, it will go wrong, like that sort of thing. Yeah, well, luck in general, but luck comes in two flavors, good and bad, right? Actually, I think when we started talking originally, Bobo, I made a, a comment that I felt like I would be good bait. And you said, yeah, we'll strap you to a tree or something. That was one of our first conversations online. Um so, yeah, I'd be, you know, the bait guy. That's, that's, I don't think that's a good idea. Sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> no, not a good idea. <laughs> now, did Bobo tell you about his orb thing that happened? Nope. Bobo, you want to share that? Yep. Um, again, I have to point out Cliff missed it because he was too short. Or so you say, I'd like to point out you were the same height as me in the South Park episode. So <laughs> See, if you're going to go start throwing stones, you might break a TV screen from the inside. Yeah, we were up by these Indian graveyards, and uh, well, earlier that night when we were walking, I saw Cliff. This is back when we had like a you had to have a DVR in your backpack with a motorcycle battery back battery, and then you ran uh, wires up to a helmet with a mounted thermal on it, and uh, so we were walking, and Cliff had the helmet on, and I was walking with you know just no light we weren't using flashlights or anything we were just walking and i saw five quick flashing pulses in the treetops like at least 150 200 feet up probably like a 40 by i don't know a 30 by 30 foot box of light kind of and it it wasn't like it was coming from one direction because it was lighting up everything or like everything lit up at once like it wasn't like a source that where you could see shadow it was just everything was lit and it just and the light just kind of stopped I was, it was really bizarre. I'd never seen anything like it. And then about we got back to camp about 45 minutes later. We were chilling, and we started hearing uh, – this is an active spot. We started hearing uh, something walking down the hillside towards us. 
and we're sitting there kind of, you know, you know, excited going, what is it? What is it? And then, you know, it sounded like it sounded like it was big. It was breaking branch. You could hear twigs cracking and stuff like that and branches snapping, not like real violent or anything, just something walking. And then as I'm looking, I see this blue ball of light about the size of a basketball. And I, I, I knew there was a mountain behind it, but I thought, is it higher? I'm seeing like a, like a plane or a satellite. Like I was trying to figure out what it was. And then I saw it go in front of a tree. It was a real soft light. Like it wasn't putting out much light at all, but it, it, when it got within like a foot of the tree, you could see a little bit of the glow light on the tree. And then it, it uh, wasn't obscured. It, it blocked the tree out. So I knew it was like right there. And it just floated on by just where the, where the branches were cracking and all that. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's, it, and see, that's a funny thing is because as of the last several years or last couple of years, at least there's been a lot of people that associate, you know, the orbs with Sasquatch even. Um, and I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I guess it, yeah, I suppose. I mean, anything's possible. After what I saw, I can tell you anything that you can think of is a possibility. But I didn't. I've never heard that story before about you. That's uh, very interesting. Yeah, and I've seen other little. I've seen little orbs like the baseball, softball size ones. Well, maybe you're an attractant as well. I don't know. One of the things that started happening after my incident, and I, I don't know if it's directly involved, but to me, I always would thank the little guy in the ball for uh, making it happen because, and this is, I'm not. This is no kidding. You can edit this out if you don't like it, but the fact of the matter is that I could be having a conversation about something. Um, an example is, uh, I started to write a lot. <laughs> I watch, uh, you know who Ben Stein is, correct? When Ben Stein's money. Yes. Yes. That guy. Also the guy from, uh, what was that movie? Uh, Ferris Bueller's day off, you know, Bueller, Bueller. Okay. Well, he was actually, there he is an extremely good writer, a very patriotic man. He was, um, white house counsel for Richard Nixon uh, Gerald Ford and a speechwriter for both those guys. And the guy can write uh, beautiful stuff. Um, and basically I watched him on some show. I can't remember what the show was. It was a talk show and he was just uh, laying out some facts and truth and stuff. I says, man, I looked at my wife. I said, I would sure like to shake his hand. That's what I said. And lo and behold, I go to the slope. I do the tour. I think I was up there for three or four weeks I fly into Seattle and who's standing at my gate, but Ben Stein. And I'm looking at him going, is that really him? And they start talking and it was like, holy crap, that's Ben Stein. So I'm thinking, what's he doing? He's standing right in my gate and we're about to fly to Spokane. I'm already bumped to first class. So I'm thinking, I bet you I'm going to be sitting somewhere around Ben Stein. So we get on the plane. He was sitting right behind me. I reached over the seat, shook his hand. And I said, sir, I says, uh, you're one of my heroes. I said, I, you know, really enjoy reading what you write. And I saw you on the show and I just, you know, really thank you. And, uh, you know, he answered me, he says, Oh, thank you very much. What, what, what is it you do? And I saw I work for a contractor for BP. So we'll find more oil. I've got a lot of stock, you know, he's a money man. So, uh, we, we actually ended up staying in, in touch with each other. And because of that contact, I had the strangest dream the next tour and it was very, patriotic. I, I read a bunch of his stuff and it was so strange because uh, I had a dream the Sunday before I flew home on the next tour that I worked. And in that dream, there was a GI uh, standing at not the gate, but the kiosk. And I said, huh, looks like that guy just got back from Iraq. And the only difference was he was wearing full green fatigues like I wore when I was in the Air Force. 
And uh, sure enough, he walks over in the dream. And I, I said to myself in the dream, what would Ben Stein do? Well, Ben would give him his first class seat because Ben was very patriotic or is very patriotic. So uh, lo and behold, um, I thought, well, that was a weird dream. But that's what I did in the dream. I gave him my first class seat. The very next day, I fly home. I get to Seattle, the same gate uh, that I had in the dream. I look over. There's a GI. He's wearing fatigues, but it's desert camel. And it's the same dude that I saw in my dream. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding you. He walks over, gets in line, and I'm I'm laughing to myself. I can't stop. I'm just thinking this is so weird. And uh, he somebody asked him, did you just get back from my, oh, what, what happened was a young kid walks up, sticks out his hand. He says, hey, uh, you know, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. He was a sergeant, the guy that was uh, I was staring at, you know, the guy that I dreamt about. He was a sergeant. And this young kid had just gotten out of basic training, so he's in uh, – very classy greens trying to look very, very, very mature, but you could tell he's just a high school kid. Right. <laughs> and, uh, he says, well, he says, did you just get back from Iraq? And the guy said, yeah, I'm on my last tour. That was it. I'm done. I'm getting out. I'm going to go, uh, you know, demob and in, in Spokane, I guess is where he's headed. And, uh, kid said, well, I'm going to Iraq right after Christmas. And the old guy or the older sergeant sat there and stared at him. He says, well, are you old enough to drink? And the kid said, yeah, he drug him off to the canteen that was there at that gate, and uh, they came back, and I was on the plane already, and I told the flight attendant, I'm going to give this older GI my seat. Well, I ended up doing that. He walked in, and I stood up, and I, I was in first class. I said, I want you to sit here. This guy gives me this dirty look sitting next to me right on the other side of the aisle. And I thought, well, it's kind of rude. <laughs> you know, must not support the troops or whatever, whatever. You know, I don't care. And uh, so... I headed back. Well, when the young kid came on, a couple of folks back, that guy that gave me the dirty look stood up, gave him his seat, and came back and took the young kid's seat. So I was totally wrong about my impression. So we fly into Spokane, and I thought, uh, I won't see him again. And the flight attendant brings me back five photos that I still have. And I look at the photos. They were pictures from my rack. And I flip each one over, and there's a little saying on the back, uh, this is an Italian group that was with us, blah, blah, blah. And the last photograph was this line of uh, Humvees going into this little village. And I flipped it over, and on the back it said, this is where my best friend was killed. And uh, I got kind of choked up, you know. And uh, so I was kind of like, oh, you know, I kind of put her downer on. I put it in my pocket. And... I thought, okay, they're off the plane. I'm not going to see them again. So I'm walking, and they come out of the bathroom. And they'd had quite a bit to drink on the plane, I guess, even though it's a short flight. But the older guy walked up and gave me a hug, the sergeant. He says, uh, just so you know, this young kid's not going to make it. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I, he says, I've had three tours over there, and I can tell you right now he's not going to make it. I said, well, why do you say that, man? That's kind of, you know, that's kind of not right. And he says, well, he says, I can just tell. I can look at a kid's face and tell you. He's going to be a gunner on a top of a Humvee. I says he's not, and, and the sergeant said he's not going to make it. So you know, I was, I felt pretty bad. Anyway, the other, the young kid came up and shook my hand, and they all walked off. Right. Well, the whole, a whole farm community was out front of the airport waiting for him in the lobby, and uh, it was really cool to, the way to end it. You know, with all uh, balloons and welcome back stuff to the sergeant, and uh, he was done and. I was done. I went upon my way. And I wrote that story down about what had happened, and I sent it to Ben Stein. And Ben Stein actually uh, did the editing for me <laughs> without question. And he said, if you can't get this published, I'll get it published for you. Well, at the time, he had 
columns in all kinds of newspapers and stuff. And uh, so it was um, it was very interesting, and and it it got published actually in the Spokesman Review. Um, my sister, who was an actress at the time, had done movies with uh, Benny and June with uh, Johnny Depp and stuff, and uh, she had a lot of interesting connections. So I get a call at home on my time off. It was uh, this young lady from the Spokesman Review who was a columnist, and she asked if she could write my story for me as a column. And I said, well, I'll lose publishership, right? I mean, I won't be the author. So I'll write it in such a way that people will know it's you. Well, that's weird. Okay. So I contacted Mr. Stein and I told him who it was that wanted to write my story. And he says, she's a friend of mine. Let her do it. So I did. And uh, it was published and it worked out real well. It was the same. It was released uh, right after the tsunamis in Thailand. And uh, the story went over real big. And anyway, so it was so strange to have that connection with Ben Stein. And you know what? That was the first time I actually said to myself, I think the guy in the ball had something to do with it because they didn't shoot him or something. I'm good. Good things are happening. Right. And uh, that was a very good thing for me. And it happened over and over and over again. And a number of things after that happened that just make me shake my head. So um, for some reason, I connected that with that sphere, whether it had anything to do with it. I don't know. But in my heart, it did. Well, I think you should. I think you need to take meaning from where you find it. You know, just like some people are into horoscopes, for example, you know, and then like if you believe in it, it means something to you. If you don't, then it doesn't. And, um, and you know, if you saw this, this, this orb thing and you attribute us, you know, a stroke of good luck or, you know, a wave of good luck to it. Why not? I mean, why not? I mean, it's as meaningful as anything else is in anybody else's life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. That's a good, a good way of looking at it. Yeah. In a way, that in a way, this the the orb thing kind of was the incoming wave, and you just learned how to surf the luck plane. Oh, I like that. That's a good good thought. Yeah. <laughs> well, heck, man, you've given us a lot to think about. And I think uh, I think the listeners probably really enjoyed this too. I appreciate the time you guys gave me. Yeah, thanks, Randy. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on. And um, as far as our counseling services, you'll receive an invoice in the mail. Um, just go ahead and make the check out the Bigfoot and Beyond podcast, and we'll square things up. All right. Excellent. Good plan. Well, I plan on coming over to your side of the river. I'm going to buy one of your, um, your, your copies of the cast, the foot. Uh, one of the footprint casts that we have for sale here. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've got quite a number of them. And, you know, I'm usually here most days. Um, I'm a little more scarce on Sundays and Mondays, but um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm here most of the days. Um, so, yeah, come on in one of those days and um, just make sure I know who you are and everything because lots of people come in here and they all seem to know me and I don't know very many people. <laughs> all right. So, uh, thank you so much, Randy, for coming on and sharing your weird stories with us. That was really, really cool. Uh, I love the weird stuff. I don't, I, I I'm going to, I don't know, Bubba, what do you think? I don't think I get enough credit for how much I love weird stuff because people think I'm Mr. Science Guy and anything outside of the reductionist science perspective. Everybody thinks I poo poo. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, Bubba, am I wrong or what? You definitely give that impression at times, but no, yeah, you're down for the weird. Well, I just love the weird. So thank you just once again for uh, sharing your weird stories with us. Um, I don't know if you're lucky or cursed or a little bit of both, but uh, keep on surfing that luck plane, I would say. I like the way you put that. That's awesome. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Randy. Sure appreciate it. All right. Have a good night, guys. Bye. Well, that was something, Bobo. Thanks for lining that guest up for us. Yeah. Can you imagine being a policeman on duty and seeing that? Like just... While you're on duty, that's that'd be just nuts. 
Yeah, because you would have to report it, I, I guess, or I guess maybe you wouldn't have to report it, but you'd be inclined to report it because you're just telling the truth. And what, what else are you supposed to do with that information, you know? But you also don't want to get your fellow police officer all tangled up in this if he doesn't want anything to do with it. That's kind of a, a, a quandary to find oneself in. Yeah, and also, I mean, you're, you're dealing with an occupation where you're literally, your life depends on the guys you're working with, and you don't want to be seen as some nut job either, you know, so you're hesitant to report it for that reason, besides just the normal social reasons. Oh, yeah, and then you go one step further. Imagine if a lawyer find, finds out about this or whatever, and you're on the stand. That's going to be his first question. So did you see an orb with a man in it floating above the ground? And, and then right away, you know, what would that do to the credibility in the eyes of the jurors? You know, th This is a real liability. Police officers out there, and, and we, we understand if you're listening and you're a cop out there, this is a real liability to your profession. Um, and when weird things happen on the job, um, it, it, I feel for you. I feel for you because you know the truth, you know what you experience, and you're unable to really say anything about it because it'll affect you professionally. Yeah, and most cops do have some crazy stories. If we have any, I know we have a lot of policemen listening to this show. If, if you're a Leo out there and you got a crazy story laid on us, we want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, and not, not just the crazy stories, but like the, the really crazy stories, you know, the ones that you probably wouldn't want to tell. Yeah, not shootouts, but like paranormal or cryptid, that sort of leaning thing. Yeah, yeah. Although we do love hearing like stories about extraordinarily strange people out there as well. And you can always uh, shoot us an email at uh, BigfootAndBeyondPodcast at gmail.com um, or just go to the website, BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com and then push the contact button and that'll get stuff to us. Oh, speaking of which, um, while we're doing this, um, Bobo and I uh, have taken to doing Q&As about once a month or once every two months. If you have a question for either Bobo or I, or me, I should say, um, go ahead and uh, go to our website, uh, BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com, and push the contact button and shoot us a question. We are looking for more questions that are fun. You can ask us anything you'd like um, and just have at it, you know? Yep. We appreciate it. Well, cool, Cliff. Looks like I'll see you in a couple of days at Bart's and then going to Gramps' wedding. Looking forward to it. All right. Okay, folks. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks to Randy for coming on board. And uh, thanks for any questions you're sending in for the Q&As. We appreciate it. So until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 